2, and we're ready to tackle chapter 2. And the word tackle is a... And I'm going to get a serenade through it. This is going to be a special message. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, as we go through it, we're tackling this passage, not because it's controversial per se. I actually didn't realize how difficult it was. Not because it's controversial, because it's a little bit hard to understand. There's been various ways to look at it. As I was reading through the materials, you know, and kind of studying, it was like, oh, there's lots of stuff in the beginning of the chapter. Lots of people make lots of comments and lots of things they say they think it is or means or how it applies and blah, blah, blah. And then as you get to the end, it just becomes, blub, 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 blub. they all stop talking about it. Oh, some nice generalities. And you're like, huh, come they're not, you know, giving me any specifics. And you look into it more, you read a journal article or two or whatever, and you go, oh, well, people have a hard time knowing what this means. So when they want to sell their book to the most people possible, they try to avoid controversy. So they just kind of muddle over it. But we are going to tackle it head on and do our best to understand it this morning. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning, and we just pray as we look at this passage, we not only tackle it sort of in an academic, mental way as understanding it, but Lord, I just pray that we would tackle it in the sense that we would make it a part of our lives, that we would incorporate it into how we live and how we serve you. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what have we been talking about in Corinth so far as we've gone through chapter 1? The Corinthians were fragmented in their loyalties, and what was one of the things we know for sure was causing their loyalties to split? They were depending on human beliefs, different philosophies, maybe the sophists and whatnot. And this was part of at least what was splitting them and causing them to not be able to get along. So now we go into chapter 2. It says in verse 1, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So he says, When I came, I came to you with testimony. So this is not a guess. This is not a deduction. This is not a philosopher waxing eloquent, trying to make mental connections to try to prove something. This is something more solid than that. And the sophists, they would go and they would heap praise on the people they were talking to. They'd say, oh, this is the greatest city. It's like going to a concert. You ever been to, I mean, you got to go to a concert. What do they start out of? Hello, Wichita! Yeah! You're the best crowd I've ever seen in my whole life. I've been playing for 40 years, and you're the greatest people I've ever seen in the history of humanity. Cheer for me, follow my Instagram, feel free to buy my CD, right? You know, that's how it goes. And that's kind of how the sophists would start as well. And so they'd heap praise on the city, they would try to win the attention of the people, and they would try to draw attention to themselves. There's actually a quote from a guy who did this, and he said this. He says, when I first visited your city, the first, when I first visited your city the first time, and gave your people, the magistrates, a sample of my eloquence, I seemed to be on friendly, yes, intimate terms with you. So he was one that had come and convinced them that he was a wonderful, elegant man, and they should listen to them. But Paul, when he came, he did not come with this lofty speech or wisdom. He did not come to impress with how well he could speak, how well he could follow the rules of speech. You know, you go through speech class. So this is, well, I, I went to college, you know, believe it or not, and I, I went to speech class, and I had this nice speech class. And this is how I learned you're supposed to do a speech. You have an intro. You have points. You have three to five points. Before you get to those points, you usually want to say, state your thesis. So you give this nice intro, you state your thesis, you give you three to five points, and then you give your conclusion. 
And it's really great if you can tie your conclusion back into your introduction. That's even sweeter, right? This is how you give a speech, and this is how it was taught. And so when we would go to class and we give our speeches and the teacher would grade us, the grading wasn't based on, did this impact me? Did this convince me? Did this hold my attention? It was just, did you have an introduction? Did you have a thesis? Did you have your points? And did you have a good poem at the end to wrap it up, right? And so... This is how we were graded, because in America, we have this certain structure on how we think speeches would go, and it's kind of seen as right, you know, or whatever. And so they had their own way of doing it, and the better you were at it, the more, you know, the more slick, the more smooth, the way you, the better you were, the more people would be impressed by you. But Paul, he rejects this. And so we go on to verse 2, and it says, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, they, they used to preach Christ so much or became famous enough amongst the Christians that often the Jews and the Gentiles would accuse the Christians of worshiping a dead man because they emphasized the importance of Christ being crucified. Verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear, and in much trembling. So when a, normally a, a great speaker would come and they'd have what they call presence. You know what presence is? When someone comes into a room and they just have it. You don't know how they got it. You don't know what they did to get it. And you don't know how to get it yourself. But they have it. They have presence. And so presence would be a big thing. And what does Paul say? Did I come in with presence and how great I am and you know, I'm, maybe I'm tall or I'm, maybe I'm, you know, good looking or I'm something that you should listen to me. And Paul says, no, I'm, I'm none of those. I came in weakness. He says, I came in fear and trembling. And this fear and trembling probably isn't like I'm scared that they're going to put me in jail, fear and trembling. It's more like I have this deep concern for you. So more like fear of my, what happened to you if you don't listen to my message. So he came with weakness. He came with this humility, this fear, this, this concern for people and what their response to Christ would be. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So once again, this idea of demonstration, similar to the idea of how we saw tempt testimony, it was tangible, he comes with something like more like proof, more like certainty. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of of God. So we do not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And this is a fairly famous verse, and I've heard quite a few sermons on them, and I've heard them two different ways. Ready? The word power is really important. It comes from the Greek word dynamis. And of course, where do we get, what do we come from the word dynamis? Dynamite. So the word of God is like power, like dynamite, and explodes. And so this is the power of the Word of God. And then I've heard him like this. All the preachers that say the word power is like dynamite are wrong. <laughs> okay? I've heard that one too. Because, of course, dynamite was invented a very long time later. And so dynamite kind of rips things apart and explodes and is sort of destructive. And so some people don't actually like the illustration of dynamite as power. Because the power is not destructive like dynamite. The power is more you know, it would be a more unifying power. Maybe destructive in some sense, maybe breaking down, you know, secular society or whatnot, but 
Uh, I'll let you decide whether you think the illustration of dynamite is appropriate or not. But certainly, Paul comes with power. This is where it starts getting sticky. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Who are the mature? Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Is the mature the mature Christians? So the mature Christians, we are able to impart wisdom. And though it is not a wisdom of this age or the rules of this age who are doomed to pass away, let's pretend we take that view. Go on to verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So if the mature are like mature believers, and these mature believers are getting some sort of secret and hidden wisdom of God, you might be starting to think to yourself, how do I get a hold of this secret, hidden wisdom of God? What is this secret thing that only mature believers get to take part in, that they only get to experience? As a matter of fact, there have been many groups that have sort of grabbed onto this idea of hidden wisdom. It's, it's gonna, I'm going to over... Um, simplify big time, so forgive me on this, but you've heard of like Christian mysticism. There's lots of different kinds, just tons of different variety within it. But there's Christian mysticism, and, and so they'll, they'll do things, make, like maybe they'll go out and live in the desert and become you know, on their own and, and you know, maybe live a really hard life, a really simple life, and they try to have these experiences where God comes to them and parts to them this Hidden wisdom, these things that have been hidden that only the mature are revealed. So if you're dedicated enough, if you're willing to do whatever it is they say you might do, you might be able to get this hidden wisdom. So is this what it means? Does it mean there's something that's sort of hard to get to that you can only get if you're mature? Well, I don't think so. And I think it goes like this. I think it means this. Yet the mature, we do impart wisdom. The mature is not... Christian mature believers, the mature is, I think, referring to, using this word mature is referring to the mature as in the people that went around doing philosophies. One term they would use for themselves is mature. So I think it's yet among the people who go around, the sophists or whoever, the philosophers, we do impart wisdom, so we tell them things, but it's not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of, or the rulers of the age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He's saying, we tell these people about the hidden wisdom of God, but the hidden wisdom of God isn't some secret crazy thing you have to find out. It is the gospel. We tell them the gospel, this thing about Jesus Christ coming, which has been known for the foundation of the world and we tell, you know, we think of the examples of Paul, you know, when he goes and he talks to secular philosophers and, you know, uses logic to try to argue with them, the existence of God and whatnot, right? He went to these kind of people and he witnessed to them. So I think he's saying, we impart the secret and hidden wisdom of God, this thing that's before the age of glory, which is the gospel. It is not some mystical thing we all need to go hang out in the desert to find. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understand this. 
For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, though the gospel was given to people, they didn't recognize Jesus Christ, right? They didn't recognize that he had come to save the world. So what did they do? We killed him. And who killed him? Well, the the Jews helped and the Romans finished her off. You blame whoever you want. But the world rejected Christ. They did not understand the wisdom they had in their hands, so they crucified it. You know, and even to this day, there's so many people, they have a hard time following Christ, you know. In Islam, it's, it can be really difficult. They, they, they think of a great prophet as someone who doesn't lose. So Muhammad, he, he had his struggles in Mecca. You know, he, he got kicked out, and it didn't all work out super well for him. But that was just a momentary setback. Because when he went to Medina and he raised his army, he went back to Mecca and showed them who was boss, right? And so to have a savior who just dies at the end seemed a little bit silly. Verse 9, but it is written, and it quotes Isaiah 64, verse 4, though loosely, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I think the things that Paul was sharing to people, this wisdom, it was the gospel. Because what happens when you accept the gospel? One day you go to heaven and you get to take part in the things that God has prepared for you. Who are the people who get to go and take part in the things that God has prepared for us? All those that have accepted the gospel, not some hidden secret that only certain people get in on. Though claiming hidden secrets sells more books if you're interested in which direction you want to go on your new book you're thinking to write. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So now we get into this idea of the Spirit, and he starts talking about the Spirit. As a matter of fact, When I first read this, I thought it was this. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. I thought Spirit was little s, not capital S, because capital S, of course, means it's the Holy Spirit. I thought it would be little s, that God revealed things to us through the Spirit, like not the Holy Spirit, but our spirit. So us as humans, it revealed to us as our spirit. I I thought that made sense. And then maybe it's kind of this play between the Holy Spirit and the human spirit, and they go back and forth. I could not find anyone to agree with me, so I'm probably wrong. Okay, so I I don't think I'm right on that. But these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's revealed this to us. So I would argue that when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit convicts us. And without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, that us in our sin, we will not choose God, and therefore the Holy Spirit coming convicts us is required. And so the Holy Spirit reveals these things to us. It searches everything, even the depths of God, going on to verse 11. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? Now we go into the human spirit. This is little s. So who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Who knows what's going on in your mind? You, right? You know what's going on in your mind. 
And so it starts getting into this idea of, okay, so you have this spirit that knows, you know, your thoughts. So you have a spirit, thoughts, body. It gets confusing, right? So we're going to foray and do a little dichotomy, trichotomy action. Some people think humans are made up of three parts. That would be trichotomy. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. Body, soul, spirit. So, there are people that think you have two parts. You just have a body and soul slash spirit. They're the same thing. Okay? So, a trichotomist might be willing to say that an animal has some sort of immaterial part, but not the spirit that goes to heaven or whatever, but you kind of have a breakup that allows you to do more things. I will not bore you with all the arguments for all these. I'm just going to go straight to my view because I get to do that. This is how I look at it. I think dichotomy is sort of right, basically. Sort of. You have two parts. But it's not as simple as saying body and soul and spirit. It's immaterial and material. This is why I say that. So you think of the scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, so on, so forth, so on. Well, does that mean we got 13 parts or however many is in that list? No, I just think there's part of us. There's the physical part, and then there's the immaterial part. And we might give it different names or different aspects of it or, or different titles that all relate to this immaterial part of us. But when the Bible talks about our soul or our spirit, it's probably all referring to the immaterial part. It's not trying to cut us up into sort of a complicated deal. And so when it says, you know, that a person's thoughts, you know, they're known by their spirit. This is just kind of this interplay within this immaterial part of a person. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So then it compares that to saying, the spirit of God only knows the thoughts of God. And this this complicated interplay between the Trinity going on there. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So if we received a spirit, not the one of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So when we become Christians, we receive a new spirit. And this is part of all this debate, right? So you say, I become a Christian. You know, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Jesus Christ now lives in me. That's like a song based on a verse. So I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Does that mean I get a new spirit but not a new soul? Or if I'm a trichotomist or, you know, how does that all work? Well, I'm not sure I know exactly. I would you can come to the men's Bible study class. We hash these things out and argue about them if you'd like to, to, to know more. But what I would just say about it and try to keeping it simple is this. We know that when we get saved, somehow there is a new spirit within us that was not there before. And I do not know exactly what the old stuff is still there. What causes us to sin? Is it the physical body? Is there a, a physical... Sinful, immaterial aspects still of us that cause us to sin. I'm, I'm not super sure. But I do know we have a new spirit in us that allows us to follow God, do what Christ wants, and that we also have something that continually pulls us to do evil. But we have this new spirit that's been given to us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are falling to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I remember one of my professors telling me a story one time. He, he met a guy, I, I can't remember if they, it was a personal conversation or you heard him lecturing in a class, but he was a, a secular professor and he was talking about church history. And I think he was talking about Luther or the Reformation or something like that. And he's like, a professor said he went in and talked about Luther's view of justification. And he gave this long explanation of Luther's view of justification. My professor said this, he said, it was one of the best explanations of justification I had ever heard. He understood the mental aspects of it. He knew what it said, he understood it, but he thought it was meaningless. There was no meaning to it. It did not matter to him, it was just another Definition he had memorized along with the series of other definitions. So when it says that the Spirit of God for their folly to him is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually discerned doesn't mean you can't memorize the definition of justification. It doesn't matter, you mean you can't understand what the gospel message is. What it means is it never, ever penetrates to the heart never penetrates to the heart. The spiritual person judges all things, but, in, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? This is, once again, a quote loosely based on Isaiah 40, verse 13. But we have the mind of Christ. They keep splitting over these secular philosophies, and he keeps trying to bring them back, bring them back, bring them back, right? What are you really supposed to care about? What are you really supposed to care about? What really supposed to, what's really supposed to matter to you? What is he arguing here? You keep following and caring about secular philosophies instead of saying, what does the Spirit of God have for me? What does God want me to do? What is the Spirit teaching me. We f- our minds flow away so easily to the core of what we need. You know, the Bible is a big book. And sometimes we think, I know it all. I've got it. I'm going to read some other stuff now. The mind of God is so beautiful, so wonderful, so vast, you can search for a lifetime and never know it all. To say you've got it, you're fooling yourselves. We need to be continually searching the mind of Christ. You know, as we get more mature in our faith, I'd like to say it gets easier, but it doesn't. I use this illustration with teenagers once, and I'm going to use it for you. They didn't understand it, so I'm confident you guys will. You know, when you first become a Christian and you're seeking after the mind of Christ, oftentimes you have really big gains in the early part of your 
your salvation. If you start out with nothing, you're like, I don't, I've never heard of Jesus before. You've got nothing. Then, then you're reading the Bible. You learn all this stuff, right? You learn all this. Oh, this is so new. This is so great. I know all these things. This is changing my life. It's really powerful, so on and so forth. You know, it really, really matters, you know. But as I go through my life, and I've kind of been a Christian a long time, it just seems like I'm, you know, I'm not having these big holy cow moments. Everything's changing for me anymore. Now, how does that work? Why does that happen? And I, I like to explain it like this. If you're someone who's never combed your hair in your life, you got long hair, you never combed it, and you're lucky enough not to lose it, and your hair is just out of control. If you take just the junkiest old comb in the world, and you power through and comb that hair, it is going to look way, way better at the beginning, right? You make a big, big jump in improvement. And then what do you have to do to have your hair be better? Well, maybe you start, you know, using certain product on it. Or then maybe you curl it, or maybe you do other stuff about hair that I clearly don't have a lot of experience in. And then, you, and then you try to improve it, improve it, improve it. It gets harder and harder. Then you're suddenly spending tons of money to go to a really awesome hairdresser and they improve. And this is not totally unlike us as we seek to find the mind of Christ. See, we get these big gains in the beginning and we just think, oh, there's always going to be these big gains. There's always going to be these big jumps I'm going to make. It actually doesn't work like that way. You have these at the beginning, and sure, there are big moments in our lives, but it normally is like, like our hair. Like we make a little improvement here, make a little improvement there. We find this shampoo works a little bit better. This hairdresser works a little bit nicer. This brand of coloring, you know, works better for me than another. We make little improvements over time, and this is often how Christian life works. And in some ways, it takes more discipline. You have to be hungry, 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 hungry to the mo- know the mind of Christ when the improvements are small. Improvements are small. So often we start not getting the big improvements anymore and we just stop. We stop. And then we start searching other things. We fade in the mind of Christ. We're getting ready to sing. We're going to sing the doxology together. And I just encourage you. I chose the doxology because doxology is such a great song that just focuses on God, that focuses on how fantastic he is. And this is what so much of what we need to do in seeking the mind of Christ. So let's pray, and then we'll sing the doxology together. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us as we sing. And Lord, I just pray that we would continue to be hungry to have the mind of Christ, that we would be spiritually discerned and that we were seeking the things of you. Not seeking the things of the world, but seeking the things of you. Lord, we love you so much. We just pray you be with our hearts and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.